I'm Regina Botras and welcome backstage where we talk with theatre makers from actors, directors, writers, theatre heads and beyond about their life in the theatre and how they got to be where they are now. And our first podcast features Jonathan Biggins. This was first broadcast on stages on the 3rd of June 2020 during lockdown. An actor, writer, director, probably best known for The Wharf Review. He has a long list of accolades behind him, winner of two Augies. He's also the author of three books. He recently performed in a cabaret for old men, Craps Last Tape last year, and the author of The Gospel According to Paul. So many things to talk about here today. Welcome to Stages, Jonathan. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So before we jump into what you're actually doing with your time now in, in lockdown, I'm sure you're busy, you know, hopefully being creative. Um, it's hard. But before we get into that, I want to find out a little bit about you and how you got to where you are. So you're from Newcastle. What was life in your younger years like? Uh, Newcastle, well, virtually unrecognisable. Newcastle today, you know, one Italian restaurant in the entire town, uh, two channels of television, no <laughs> internet or anything like that. Um, but we were very lucky, had a couple of things. Uh, uh, we had a, a theatre for young people, Young People's Theatre it was called, oh. run by a couple called Bill and Betty Ford, and they steeped you in the traditions of theatre making. And we'd go along on the weekends and we'd do a show every Saturday night. They had their own theatre. they do kids' pantomimes throughout the year. Um, then we, as we got older, we'd do more sort of adult work, self-devised works. But it was a fantastic grounding in, in the theatre. And that's really where it all sort of started and where I, I, I um, you know, discovered my love for live performing. Got your legs, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, it was a great childhood to have. And then mum and dad had been in amateur theatre at university and mm-hmm. uh, they, you know, still did some amateur theatre, so I did some stuff that my mother directed. Um, she was directing university reviews when she was having me, so, you know, it all runs in the family. Uh-huh, all in the blood there. So do, do you remember the first sort of theatre you saw? Um, well, I... I think I was probably kind of in it before I was conscious of seeing it. I'm probably my mem- earlier memories would have been, you know, being in musicals that, that my mother was directing, or I think I was a, an acolyte in Twelfth Night when I was about seven years old when my father was playing Malvolio, amateur production. And mm-hmm. we used to go out when they were rehearsing on the weekend, we'd just, you know, go out and play. As kids, wherever they were rehearsing the, the, the latest production for the university. Yeah, it's probably being in it. Mm. So you would say then that you sort of started as an actor or performer rather than a writer or? Oh, yes. Yeah. I, mean, okay. I didn't want to be an actor when I was a kid. I wanted to be a naval architect. But luckily the, the, the first play which I did at university was directed by a guy called Arnie Nimi who became very much a mentor to me. A year later he turned up as the artistic director of the Hunter Valley Theatre Company, which was a fully professional rep company uh, in Newcastle at the time. It doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Uh, and I went and joined them and worked there full-time for two years. And, you know, the wheels turned. Arnie, Arnie directed um, The Gospel According to Paul because he's a, a great dramaturg and, and a great director and, and it was an ideal choice for a new work and it was, you know, just me in it. So it was nice to have someone who you trust and respect. 
Yeah. Um, Do you think that that's something that's really important? Obviously, it is. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's a leading question, but how important are those kind of theatrical relationships in your career and how they work? I think they work in, I mean, I think they work in every career, really, mm. um, um, in networks of people that you know and trust and, and that you can work easily with. I don't know about you, but I think half the success of any job, if it's done well, is the fact that you like the people you're working with mm. and no one gives you grief. And the older that you get, the more reluctant you are to work with difficult people because it's just not worth the effort in the end. Do you think that's sort of some sort of guideline for your success? In some ways. Uh, well, I've, I've had a fairly slow burn career. I don't know if you'd call it a success. <laughs> you know, you look around and you think, oh, gosh, everyone else seems to be doing so much better than me. Um, but I think that's probably true of everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, slow burn and, um, as you say, forging relationships at last because you know, I've been working with Drew and Philip. The War for You has been going for 20 years. Yeah. And, and we were doing Three Men and a Baby Grant 10 years before that. And and it does have a, a longevity if you can get that balance right. You can keep going for as long as you, you know, want to do it. And we've been very lucky in that regard. Uh, and, you know, doing political satire, it's, it's a game where the rules stay the same, the issues stay the same, but the personalities change. So if you're doing it as a live show, you've got an endless sort of, you know, stream of material. We help each other out when we get the chance. The Chinese will shit their pants. This is a fine bromance. There must be times where you haven't kind of gotten on, are there? How do you work through things, you know? Um, I don't know. We've all had breaks from it. Um, mm. We've not all done it all the time. Mm. We've certainly written it together. I don't think there's only one show well, maybe two shows where it wasn't all three of us writing. We don't tend to sort of socialise a great deal, I suppose, outside of it. We, but, well, most of the time we're working. You know? Yeah. This is the trouble with also with being a, a live theatre actor is that you work the most antisocial hours <laughs> possible. We spend a lot of time in each other's company. Uh, and we do individual projects together and, and we go off and do other things. I think that's what kept, kept us sane. I don't think we'd want to be doing it 12 months of the year. In fact, it's got too too demanding. I mean, I had to have last year off because I just wanted to do something else. And I was lucky enough to have the Keating to do. But most of the work I've, we've had or I've had in my career has been kind of self-generated because I thought, well, if I sit around the, waiting for the phone to ring, ask someone asking me to act in their play or film or television series, I'll be waiting a long time. <laughs> So what do you do when you're looking for something to work on to write? You know, I mean, you write across a, a, a very broad range of, you know, from political to, I don't know, children's books. So what, are you, what is, where do you look for inspiration for ideas? Uh, well, I guess, I mean, the, the Keating has been a very happy goldmine to have. Men and women of the regional arts centres of Australia, you are the central nervous system of the cultural life of this country. And I am offering you a shot of pure adrenaline, a theatrical presentation called The Gospel According to Paul, working title. A one-man show that chronicles my extraordinary contribution to the public discourse. The life of PJ Keating, former world's greatest treasurer and the last decent prime minister this country has had. I was going to say, so why, why do you think 
I mean, obviously a joy to play and we'll get into the kind of, you know, technicalities of, of actually playing. But why do you think it's sustained here, his his story and, and what you're bringing to the stage? Yeah, well, I think um, he's probably one of the last great leaders the country's had. And, you know, big picture politics is coming back into fashion as we see the disastrous end results <laughs> of small picture politics, as we see the disastrous results of just focusing on the economy at the expense of everything else. He was able to combine the two. Plus he left school when he was 14. He self-educated. He was, well, he didn't call it arrogant. He called it confident. (laughs) He was able to articulate a broad range of issues and talk on virtually any subject. And he was able to drag the people with him. Uh, And even the people who ended up hating him now miss him. And I think after the last 20 years of, you know, once Howard left, Howard was a firm leader. You may yeah. not agree with his politics, but he was no. a firm leader. We just haven't had anyone like that since. And we desperately need someone like that. And the world does. And, and as we watch America burn, mm. you see the result of the failure of leadership and government. And Keating was um, one who believed in public service who believed in in the role of government and good policy. And I think people respond to that. Plus, mm. he was funny, entertaining, uh, and he called a spade a spade. And in these days where everyone's sort of, you know, looking at their jumping at shadows and worrying about what people might think of them, he couldn't care less. Mm. Very, very appealing character to play on stage. Yeah, so how is it impersonating... Well, just in general, I suppose, you know, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's a very easy. I can't do voices for anything, let alone somebody. I mean, it's interesting when you do it, a play of that sort of and expand it into a, a play about someone's life. And it sort of goes beyond impersonation. You're not doing an impression of them, really. It, they become a character. Uh, and you're kind of fooling. I don't really sound like him. I don't really look like him. But <laughs> there's a few little tricks that make people think you do. Uh, someone suggested we should present an award together somewhere for this. <laughs> I said, no, bad idea. That would be no. a terrible idea because it would shatter the myth, the illusion completely. The suspension of disbelief. <laughs> yeah. So I think don't go down that path. Um, but I was, I was reading an interview with Rob Brydon and he said, I never do an impression of someone I don't like. And I thought, and he said, that's why I don't do Trump. Now, I do Trump as well but I'm finding it increasingly difficult to do it because I don't really want to do it. Unfortunately, being in political satire, you, you kind of have to, but he's becoming increasingly reluctant to actually go up there. He, he's not, it's hard to get a, a laugh out of him now, I think. Mm, yeah, it's too, too tragic. I believe Tony Abbott, having successfully destroyed four governments, including his own, will be moving to the Vatican, and I believe he will try to destabilise Pope Francis, uh, because he's not quite Catholic enough. It is, you know, one of the difficulties of being a political satirist is you actually have to deal with people and events and news that you just think, oh, I'd rather not know about it. That's been one of the great joys of being in, you know, isolation. You, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Is in the past. Now we're friends at the last. 
And you are listening to Stages. I'm Regina Botros, and we are talking with the one and only Jonathan Biggins. So uh, uh, throughout your career, was, it, was there a time that you went now, okay, now I'm professional, like, or, or something maybe that you're particularly kind of proud of or or was most challenging? I was lucky, you know, going joining the Hunter Valley Theatre Company, which was effectively my drama school, but I was being paid to be there. So, I, I mean, I've been a, a member of, the union since 1976, when I joined as a child. Um, <laughs> but, and, and being able to branch out into different things like doing radio. I mean, I presented the afternoon shift at 2BL for a couple of years, well, 702, whatever it's called now. Yeah. Um, you know, working on ABC TV for the arts program, for mass, writing for the Good Weekend magazine, doing books. You have to diversify. Uh, and I think... You know, I'm reluctant to call myself a writer, but I suppose I am really in a way. But it always sounds a bit pretentious or something to me. But, um, I mean, it's like bad enough calling yourself an actor. For years I've just put student on my passport application. <laughs> really? <laughs> student of life. <laughs> it's better than calling yourself a poet. It's hard to make a living out of being a poet. Oh, totally. My partner's a poet. <laughs> and then, you know, directing stuff. Do you have a favourite? At the moment it's probably directing because... You don't have to turn up eight shows a week to do it uh, and you don't have to write it necessarily. But I think at this point in time I would quite like just being in a light-hearted comedy that someone else has written and I've just got to turn up and do it. I suppose, you know, diversifying but also being a writer, you can return to create your own work. So have you been working or you've been writing during this lockdown time? Or? But it, it's probably rather foolishly writing something for the theatre, which may never <laughs> you know, return to us. I know, it's so dark. And what would you say to, to the important people, the governing people that spread the money out? What would you say to them, to you know, about the entertainment industry or the theatres and, and what it does for people? Well, I think there's been a, a, a very definite, ideologically driven disregard mm. the arts community during this whole time. I think you would have to say, I'm not one given to conspiracy theories, but mm -hmm. I think there is definite evidence that that has been the case. Um, I think, you know, one of the great things about Keating when he was Minister for the Arts, he, he didn't necessarily give it more money. He just encouraged its importance. He gave it a place in the national conversation. He gave it credibility and he gave it status. We have had that status constantly eroded for the last... 10, 15, 20 years, um, and it's never been under erosion more quickly than the current administration. And I find it odd because Scott Morrison, he, he, his parents um, began a, a, an amateur theatrical theatre company. Uh, he was in, his father directed him as the Artful Dodger in Oliver. Oh, he, wow. I mean, maybe he had a very unpleasant experience during it, and that's... <laughs> But I just find it odd. And I, I agree with Lee Lewis, who used to be the artistic director of Griffiths, now Queensland Theatre Company. She's saying, I'm not going to bother talking to government anymore. There's no point. I'm going to build my audience. And, and I, I agree with her. I think that the, the, the best way to a healthy cultural life is to engage with your audience. You know, we spend so much time and money trying to change government's opinions. And I have to say, the state government, I 
I do not include them in that. I think they've been, you know, supportive and generous and they haven't been too bad. But at a federal level now, you might as well just forget it, I think, and and and, and try to do the best you can and, you know, generate as much income as you can for the, for the companies by putting on um, shows that people want to see. And then you can subsidise the ones that aren't so popular that way. And I think that's the beauty of the review. I mean, yeah. we don't compromise quality. We don't compromise standards. It, 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 it has its own artistic merit, yet it just happens to be extremely popular. <laughs> it's a great, so lucky, you know. It's a great tool for um, reflecting back. It's a great tool for the company, for STC, because yeah. it, 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 gener- it generates money for them. And, um, you know, we can't wait to get back in the theatre and hopefully we will be able to. Mm. So what are you doing? Well, yeah. at the moment we're doing a cabaret. We did a cabaret, Phil Scott and I, last year for the Sydney Cabaret Festival called No Cabaret for Old Men. And uh, Parramatta Riverside, under the enlightened direction of Mr Robert Love, who has done an extraordinary job, he should be given a knighthood if such things exist, we're doing a, a live stream. Not ideal. It's not really theatre, but it's the closest we can come to it. Uh, and that's going out on Sunday at five o'clock. So we've been doing that. We're sort of starting to write this year's review, but then you think, well, if we're not on till October, not much point in writing it now. So much changes. I mean, you're writing it right in the moment, aren't you? On the day of things. You look at you? America and you think, God knows what could happen. You know, are we going to have an election in November? Yeah. Going to do something extraordinary? So, yeah, yeah, you've got to keep an eye on it. And I think people might have tired of coronavirus jokes by then. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Hopefully. So, no cabaret for old men. So, how are you um, performing? Are you, is it by Zoom or are you in the space or? No, 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 it's not by Zoom. It's actually got production values. <laughs> yes. So, I don't think I could bear to see another person singing a song through a laptop camera on a Zoom or a whatever. Uh, it, it's now they've, they've set up the stage at the big right. theatres as oh. a sort of little virtual studio. Are you able to have a small audience in there, or no, no, have anyone? We might have two. I think that would be good because, you know, that's, that's about the right size for cabaret. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is also a lot of it is about the audience responding and you working with an audience, right? Oh, it's all about it. Yeah. It's going to be very awkward doing comedy when there's absolutely nothing. <laughs> Just keep moving quickly. <laughs> so you've done so many big stages. You've done all the, you know, state theatres and opera and things. Um, how was it going last year into to Crap's Last Tape, at the, the old Fitz Theatre downstairs, this very intimate oh, tiny. space? Yeah. Petri dish of infection. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it was actually quite good because I couldn't see anyone because the, the lighting was quite bright. And it's a play about isolation. Uh, the hard thing was trying to cope with the noise from the pub. So at one point I had to bang on the wall and pretend that my neighbours were being rowdy because it's hard to kind of maintain any reality when there's the sound of people enjoying dinner on the other side of the wall. But it didn't really matter because Crap's Last Tape is not, not overly funny. Beckett funny, which is not, yeah. you know, laugh out loud funny. So it was... Kind of all right. In fact, you could probably do that play with no one and it would be all right. I was surprised by the response to it. I mean, it, it, it went very well, but it was it was fun. It was also fun to do something 
that demanded a little more internal and with the craft shall we say yes internalizing and emoting it's a very sad play i don't know if you saw it but it's, i did see it i saw you in it yes it's pretty it's, tragic yeah uh and it's very you know doing that particularly at 11 o'clock on a wednesday morning <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully we'll do it again sometime well you could do it on zoom said to one audience <laughs> i mean not to one audience to you could actually i've already suggested you could do it as a live stream from the old fits but i think it's uh it's negotiating with the beckett estate which could be the stumbling block that is a huge stumbling block and it has been um for many productions so what what advice would you give to anyone wanting to pursue a, a career in entertainment not about this in uh, this time in our lives of course this is a unique period but it can probably boil down to one word don't <laughs> there are far better things to do with your time i think if you can't help it <laughs> if you can't help it well i think this is the problem i i often look at people who do community theater or amateur theater whatever you want to call them i think you're so lucky you get all the benefits you get all the fun you get the creative outlet but you don't rely on it for your income. Mm. You don't become bitter. You don't become stressed by it. You just enjoy it. Uh, and I think that's a great gift. If you have to rely on it for a living, I guess have as many strings to your bow as possible, I would say. Do as many things as you can. Learn to sing. Learn to dance. Learn an instrument. Um, write. Act. Write. Yeah, write. But, you know, writing's tricky because, I mean, the internet has made everyone a novelist, everyone a playwright, everyone a film actor, everyone a filmmaker, uh, and with the end result that most of them aren't. But I think we are getting a, a much broader democratisation in a way of the whole art of creative performing and writing and I think that makes it increasingly difficult for people to make a living out of it because the 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 wider the pool or the you know the broader the pool the shallower the income stream is um so I think you know when I started out there weren't too many people about but the um acting schools have been churning out graduates and graduates and so many people now can say I want to be an actor uh, and that's great but it gets very hard to make a living out of it. So I, I count myself very lucky that I've been able to. I feel sorry for any young graduates coming out, well, let's say current crisis aside. Yeah. But, you know, I, I have great faith. I think, you know, one thing that this period of isolation has shown is that you cannot beat the live experience and you can have as many Zoom conferences as you want. People do have an innate need to be in each other's company uh, and that's the best way to experience, particularly comedy. You cannot beat being in an audience for comedy. No. Uh, and I think we will go back to it. Although it's interesting, just before this whole thing started, in the, in the, when it was becoming apparent and they made the first decision to stop anything over 500, I was doing the Keating at, at Glen Street an older demographic, shall we say. Yes. And in the final matinee, just before the theatre, in the week before the theatres got closed altogether, it was a full house and there were 135 no-shows. And obviously the audience was nervous. And I think that's what we're going to have to fight when we 
come back is getting the audience to come back and willing to sit next to someone. So that's the challenge. The other challenge, of course, for live theatre is if someone in the cast gets it, that's it. Show's closed for two weeks. Understudies are pointless because everyone else has to go and quarantine. So there are many challenges. It's going to be some time before we get back to normal. But who knows? Maybe it'll fizzle out like, you know, the the pandemic will run its course and it just becomes a thing we live with like ordinary flu. The uncertainty yeah. is what is so, so difficult to cope with at the moment, uh, particularly for arts organisations. How, how can you plan anything when you don't even know what's going to happen? It's awful for so many people, workers in the industry. It's really devastating. I feel sorry for all you people who've had uh, programs dealing with the theatre. You've just had nothing to really fill mm, them. Indeed. Well, that wasn't the note I wanted to end on. I look forward to seeing you and your company online in the meantime, um, on the other end of the screen, uh, until we can be in the company of others. Uh, I look forward to that even more. Jonathan Biggins, thank you so much for joining me on Stages. My pleasure. Thank you.